All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Mark. In this session, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 72. Jesus has just finished the Passover meal, the Last Supper, with his disciples. He has traveled out to the Garden of Gethsemane. He has prayed, asking God to take this cup from him, and yet he wants to submit to God's will. At the same time, he has kept coming back to Peter, James, and John, finding them asleep, and now he can see the the crowd being led by Judas coming out to him at the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where we're at in the story, and so let's pick up at that point here in verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, and so he's been speaking to his disciples, telling them it's time, let's go, let's go meet them. He can see them coming. He has prepared himself by praying. And so while he's still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, that's an important little note that highlights just like he was a part of this group, right? Like he was an insider and yet he has turned on them. So Judas One of the twelve came up, accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And so Mark notes this, and it's one of the twelve, and he notes he comes with the Jerusalem leadership. Uh, And notice how they come. They come with swords and they come with clubs, like batons. These are members probably of like the temple police force. Maybe there's some others of the security guards or uh, just members of the ruling elite who sent some of their servants to come along and let's send a big crowd. We learn from John's gospel that it sounds like there might even have been a small contingent of Roman soldiers in this crowd. They now arrive at the Garden of Gethsemane, and here's what happens, verse 44. Now, he who was betraying him i.e. Judas, but now we're describing him by his role and what he has done. He's the one who's betraying Jesus. He had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. And so it's dark. Um, There is the other disciples there. It's not 100% clear, right? It's a dark night. And so he had given a signal to make it really clear which one is Jesus here in the dark. It's going to be the one that I kiss. And so in verse 45, after coming, Judas immediately went to him and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and arrested him. Notice that, Rabbi, and a kiss of greeting. Those two things were supposed to be really be a sign of honor, right? This was a greeting of honor for my master, my teacher, my rabbi. You give him a kiss of greeting, and yet here it displays Judas's hypocrisy, his duplicity, right? It's a signal of whom to seize. And so with this uh, kiss of greeting, this address of honor, Judas betrays Jesus, and they seize him, and they arrest him. But, as the story continues, one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, this is actually mentioned in all four of the Gospels. In fact, John, in his Gospel, identifies the person who did this was actually Peter. And John actually tells us the name of this servant. His name was Malchus, and Luke tells us that Jesus actually healed his ear in the wake of all of this. Mark doesn't tell us any of that. He just keeps it very brief. And if Mark has uh, developed his story from his conversation with Peter, maybe that's why he kept it brief out of respect for him. Who knows? But he keeps it very brief. He doesn't even name him. He just struck off his ear um, without warning. 
Mark continues his story. He doesn't even tell any of how Jesus responded to that, as we see in some of the other Gospels. Here, Jesus addresses the crowd. Look at this, verse 48. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a man inciting a revolt? Every day I was with you in the temple grounds teaching. You didn't arrest me. But this has taken place so that the scriptures will be fulfilled. Jesus isn't someone who's leading a revolt. He's not a revolutionary. He's not calling his followers to fight with swords. He's not going to go out in a blaze of glory against all these people. No, that's not who he is. They had ample opportunity to arrest him in the temple. Jesus knows that. Jesus also knows that the reason they didn't is because they were afraid of the people. And so he's sort of pointing that out subtly here, right? But he's not a revolutionary. Um, And so he wants them to know that he understands what's going on. And so he points all that out. And then Mark simply says in verse 50, and his disciples all left him and fled, just as Jesus had said they would. They all scattered and fled. Now, Peter and another disciple or two, they're going to kind of regroup. They're actually going to follow at a distance and see what happens. But in this moment, they all just scatter and run for their lives. And then we get a strange little scene that's only found in Mark's gospel. Look at verse 51. And a young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him, but he pulled free of the linen sheet and he escaped naked. So Uh, All of Jesus' people, all those who are with him, are scattering and running. There's this one young man who is unnamed, who is there in the garden, and he doesn't have his normal robe on or his tunic on. He's just got a sheet wrapped around his body. And so they go to grab him, and he uh, leaves the sheet behind, and he runs naked. Now, we don't know uh, who this is. Um, There's been all sorts of speculation and all sorts of guesses One guess that actually may be the best guess is that this young man is actually Mark himself. Uh, There is very strong early tradition that the place where the uh, apostles and Jesus had the Last Supper was at Mark's house in Jerusalem, where Mary, his mother, had a wealthy home with an upper room. The church was actually meeting there in the wake of the resurrection and ascension. And so that's possible. We don't know for sure, but this little scene simply speaks to the chaos of the moment. And so here you get this young person running from the Garden of Gethsemane in nothing but maybe his underwear, if that's all he had on. Um, Well, they led Jesus away, verse 53, to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes gathered together. Now, Mark doesn't name the high priest here. He keeps it pretty generic. We know from John's account that, that both Annas and Caiaphas were involved. And Caiaphas was the legal high priest, but Annas was his father-in-law, and Annas still retained power, even though the Romans had demoted him and had uh, installed Caiaphas as the legal high priest. And so, they, they, according to John's gospel, they started at Annas with Annas, then Annas handed him over to Caiaphas, and it all happens in the palatial estate of the high priest in Jerusalem. And so, that's where they're going. They're heading there. Um, and a group of the ruling elite is gathered there to deal with Jesus. They're prepared. They've got this all organized, and they're all set up. And then Mark goes on to describe the scene in verse 54. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. Again, we know from John's gospel that another disciple, probably John himself, who was acquainted with, had some connections with uh, the high priesthood. And so he entered into the courtyard 
he made sure Peter got into the courtyard. And so they followed at a distance and then they get there in the courtyard and they're going to kind of watch what happens, hoping to, you know, not be spotted or seen. And so Peter uh, follows him right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he's sitting there with the officers, probably some of the servants and the temple police who have been involved in arresting Jesus, sitting there around the fire, warming himself with them at the fire, wanting to see what's going to happen. Now, the chief priests and the entire council were trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they weren't finding any. For many people were giving false testimony against him, and their testimonies were not consistent. Now, notice what Mark does and how he words that in verse 55 and 56. He highlights the fraudulent nature of this so-called trial. Even though it's night, the whole council is there, meaning they're prepared, they're ready for this moment. They're not looking for the truth. Instead, they're looking for enough testimony that they can put them to death. They've already got some false witnesses there, ready and prepared to give their testimony, again, even though it's night. But even their testimony can't agree. It's not consistent. And so they're prepared. This is a trumped up trial. They're not looking for the truth. They just want to put him to death. Well, they can't agree. It's getting nowhere. Um, Verse 57, then someone stood up and began giving false testimony against him saying, well, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that was made by hands. And in three days, I will build another made without hands. Um, Jesus had said this sort of things at various points in his ministry. You can see him saying this in John chapter 2, verse 19. And John notes there that he was actually referring to his, his body, his physical body, as like a temple where God and, and earth connect in Jesus' uh, personhood, right? And that he's going to die and then he's going to be resurrected again. That's what, um, when Jesus said that, that's what he was alluding to and getting at. But now they're saying he's talking about the actual temple there in Jerusalem. And Mark tells us, but even in this respect, their testimony wasn't consistent. And so this is going nowhere. This trial that they have prepared is is getting them nowhere. They're not making progress. They can't get anyone to agree what's wrong with this guy. And so verse 60, the high priest stood up, came forward and questioned Jesus saying, do you offer any answer for what these men are testifying against you? Like, even though their testimony is inconsistent, even though it's clear that they're fabricating all of this, the high priest still demands an answer from Jesus. And this is, again, Mark's way of highlighting what a kangaroo court this is, how false this is. And how does Jesus respond? Well, look at verse 61. But he kept silent and did not offer any answer. Again, maybe a subtle allusion to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 7 says, And like a sheep before its shearers are silent, so he did not even open his mouth. And so Jesus kept silent, didn't make any any answer to what the high priest asked him. And so again, the high priest was questioning him, saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And so here we get to the real crux of the matter. The high priest asked him straight up, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of God, the Messiah? And to that, Jesus will give an answer. Look at verse 62. Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And so when it comes to his identity, all these other trumped up charges, all these other things where Jesus knows they're just looking for an excuse to kill him, uh, he'll, he'll keep silent. But here, when asked about his identity, 
Jesus gives a straightforward I am. And in fact, this is consistent in all the Gospels. Jesus is silent until they question him about his identity as Messiah. And not only that, but here he actually adds uh, to his I am the Messiah. He adds to it a reference from Daniel chapter 7, emphasizing his glory and his authority. In fact, one commentator describes this as almost a defiant in-your-face moment where it's like, I am, and here's what that means. It speaks of his vindication and his honor before God. He alludes to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Let me read you what that says because it's so important for what Jesus has said here and Jesus' self-understanding. And so Daniel 7, 13 and 14 says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion honor, a kingdom, so that all peoples, nations, and populations of all languages might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so in this scene in Daniel 7, the Son of Man is uh, brought before God's throne, and God gives him a universal kingdom over all mankind. Well, that's what Jesus is alluding to when he says that you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. It also seems like Jesus' Jesus' reply combines with it maybe an allusion to Psalm 110, verse 1, another well-known messianic text in Jesus' day. Psalm 110:1 says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so this idea of seeing the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, Psalm 110.1, and then coming with the clouds of heaven up to, not to earth per se, but in Daniel 7, up to the throne of the Ancient of Days and being given a universal kingdom. And so honor and vindication before God, sitting at God's right hand, that's who Jesus is. And so when the high priest challenges Jesus on his identity as Messiah, Jesus emphasizes it by saying, I am, and quotes scripture, alludes to scripture, and the high priest gets the point. And so verse 63, tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And so at this point, Mark essentially says to us in his story, let the record of history show that Jesus was condemned for affirming who he was and the Jewish ruling powers, they didn't believe it. And so they all condemned him as deserving of death. And some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fist and to say to him, prophesy. Then the officers took custody of him, slapped him in the face. Uh, The officers would be the Jewish officers of the high court maybe some of the temple police, right? And so here they are mocking him, spitting on him, shaming him, blindfolding him, beating him, right? All in a way to degrade him and show their disgust and their dishonor towards him. Now, don't forget about Peter, right? Here's what's happening to Jesus, but Peter's been in the courtyard. And so now we, the camera turns back out and looks at Peter out in the courtyard, and here's what happens, verse 66. And while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the slave women of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You were with Jesus the Nazarene as well. 
Uh, there's just enough light near the fire to make Peter's face out. And she wants to be sure. It actually says literally that she, she came, she saw Peter, and then notice she looked at him. Literally, she stares at him. So she's, she's going to check him out, make sure she doesn't make a mistake before she says this. So she gives him a good staring down, and then she's sure. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's him. And so she says, you were with Jesus the Nazarene as well. Now, we don't know when she saw him with Jesus, but she's pretty sure she saw him with Jesus before. But Peter, how did he respond? Verse 68, he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he withdraws out to the porch, or more literally, um, out to kind of near the entryway to the courtyard, further away from the fire, further away from the crowd, closer to the exit, he withdraws. But the slave woman, as she saw him, probably saw him as he begins to withdraw, began once more to say, now to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And so she points him out to others as he's starting to make his way away. She's like, he was with Jesus. I'm sure of it. And Peter denies it again. Well, after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, probably some of those that she had pointed him out to, right? Some of those bystanders. And so now they've looked at him, they've thought about it, um, and then they thought about maybe, maybe the last little bit of time and uh, maybe hearing him speak, right? And so those bystanders were again saying to Peter, you really are one of them for you're a Galilean as well. How do they know he's a Galilean? Well, Mark 26, 73 tells us his accent gave him away. The way he talks, the Galileans had a distinctive accent. So they've heard his voice enough to know that he's a Galilean. And so they're like, no, no, I think she's right. He's with Jesus. But he began to curse and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And so he, he calls down curses. May, may curses be upon you if what I'm saying is not true. That's the idea. I don't know this man of whom you speak. And notice the flow from his first denial till now. His first denial was, I don't know what you're talking about. To the third denial, I don't know this man. And so now he's even more emphatic. And the denial is even deeper and more personal. I don't know this man of whom you speak. And what happened, verse 72? Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made that remark to him before the rooster crows twice. You will deny me three times. And he hurried out and began to weep. Now, before we leave this scene, I just want you to notice the contrast between Peter and Jesus. Jesus in the garden, in our last session, it was noted how overwhelmed he was with emotion, how distressed and troubled and grieved he was, and how it was weighing heavily upon him. But he went out and he prayed. In that same scene, Peter, along with James and John, they were told to pray and keep watch, but they didn't. They were, they were so overwhelmed with sleep, they slept instead of praying. So now here in this scene, in this recording... We have Jesus before the Sanhedrin, before the ruling elite of Jerusalem. 
It's the middle of the night. He knows what's coming and he has his complete wits about him, even up to the point to, I'm going to speak when I want to speak, not just when they try to get me to speak. And he keeps silent until they ask him about his identity. And then when they ask him about his identity, he gives a straightforward, yes, I am the Messiah. And he reinforces it and emphasizes it with scripture. And so he's in charge of himself and he's in charge of the situation. And he's going to be faithful and loyal to God right up to the end. But Peter, Peter here denies that he even knows Jesus to bystanders in the courtyard. Jesus affirms his identity to the very ruling powers who have the power to actually do something about it. Peter denies Jesus to a servant girl and to some bystanders. Now, and that's not because it was easy for Jesus. Like, hey, well, you know, he's God in the flesh. It's easy for him. No, that's the whole point of the last scene to help us realize, no, he's fully human. And he was deeply overwhelmed by this moment. We saw the anguish in the garden, right? No, the reason Jesus could do this is because he's prepared. His will is set to do God's will at all costs, and he has prayed to handle the hour of testing. Peter, what did he do? Well, he slept. He slept. And although the spirit was willing to be loyal to Jesus, the flesh was weak. And so here... In this moment, Peter denies Jesus. All right, before we leave this session, just know that the listener's commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching effort made possible by the generosity of people just like you. So thanks a ton for your support, both financially and in prayer. And if you want to join the team of supporters, you can do that by going to listenerscommentary.com, clicking the Give button, or there's a link down in the notes below. Thanks a ton for your support.